Welcome to the Defiant Spirit, a podcast about discovering meaning, purpose, and resilience in the most challenging, difficult, and darkest moments of our lives through what my teacher and mentor, Dr. Viktor Frankl, called the defiant power of the human spirit, that spirit that is within you, that spirit that is calling to you, that spirit that is you. I'm Dr. Baruch Halevi, and this is the Defiant Spirit, and now, on to our podcast. To the Defiant Spirit, the Defiant Spirit podcast on Baruch Levy, also known as B, and this is part two of this two-part series, unless I decided there's going to be a third part. Um, the reason why there's two parts is because in the middle of the first one, I didn't even get to the topic I wanted to discuss. And so instead of trying to cram two topics into one and to making you listen to hours and hours on end of this um, I thought I'd divide it into two. So today's topic is a continuation of the last, and it revolves around fundamental core strategies in navigating life storms, navigating what I call life's T's, transitions, tests, trials, traumas, tragedies. We're always in the midst of one of those T's. Hopefully, it's more of a transition, um, but life is a transition. And, and of course, we're not getting out of this without all of us facing um, the challenging, darker, difficult aspects of life. I like to prepare for them. You don't have to be going through hell to get ready for hell. In fact, it's not a great idea to try and prep for hell when you're in it. So you can't uh, make it go away once you're in it, whatever that hell is, whatever that struggle is, whatever that suffering is. Viktor Frankl calls it the inner concentration camp. And I do believe that is the right description for it. Because when you're going through one of these moments, you feel reduced. You feel incarcerated. You feel trapped. We need strategies. We need tools. We need other people's insights and experience and wisdom to navigate, to develop our muscle for responding so we don't simply react in those moments. And so the last podcast I did was all about what I call logos lines, meaning lines. What are those? Um, I also call it in more spiritual context, soul thread. Those are the lines that run through our life that don't waver, that don't change. When you're going through turbulence, when you're going through challenges, one of the first things that I believe you have to do, I believe this having gone through it myself and having guided thousands of others through it, is to ground down into something that is true. And something that is true, I'm not talking about false, like factually true. I'm talking about true at its deepest level. So in Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, um, it says that the Aleph Bet, the Hebrew alphabet, is made up of the first letter, an Aleph, the middle letter, a Mem, and the last letter, a Tuf, and that spells Emet, and that spells truth. And the reason why it's beginning, middle, and end is because it represents an idea that that is truth. It has uh, a continuity to it. It's there at the beginning. It's there at the middle. It's there at the end. It's there in all aspects of your life. What is true is enduring. What is true does not change. It isn't sometimes true. It isn't mostly true. It was, is, and will forever be true. And there is a piece of you that is true, that is enduring, that does not change. Your body will break. It'll change. It'll die. Your psyche, your 
emotions, your personality, all of that is always in flux. But what is not in flux, Dr. Viktor Frankl said, is your nuos, your essence, your spirit, the true you. I don't care what you call it. All that matters is that you anchor down into that, that you go to that, that you find that. Because when everything else changes, when the world around you is unpredictable, that is a certainty. And we don't need a lot of those certainties in our lives. In my experience, we need one thing, one stepping stone. You don't have to know how to get through hell. You just have to know where to put your next step and the one after that. And it begins with that first step. Sounds like a cliche. It is. Cliches are true. And so finding that one solid certain point, it's why it's so important to have a friend, just one friend, or a philosophy, just one philosophy, or a strategy, just one strategy. You don't need everything. You just need something, someone, somewhere to begin. And that's what a soul thread is. And I work with clients to find their soul thread, to find now, I call it the logos line, to anchor themselves. So listen to the previous podcast. Now, moving on. Originally, I wanted to talk about why this is so important. And as I said in the other podcast, at least I got to it. Um, as you know, I don't say it lightly, but I do say it often. My father completed, committed suicide. I, I say both of those. I know um, either one's going to get me in trouble. So um, I'm just going with committed suicide because that really expresses how, what I feel he did. He he made a mistake. He violated a contract that he had with me, with his, with his, uh, my siblings, his children, his spouse, his family, his friends, his community, and he left. And I've forgiven him for that. It's a complicated, complex thing, suicide, and it's a conversation for another day. If you want to read more on it, I wrote a book on it called Spark Seekers: Morning with Meaning. So you can check that out. But. One of the reasons why I'm so passionate about what I do is because my father, he hung himself and he did so out of an, as an act of desperation. No, no human being, no man is going to do this when they are in their inspiration, when they are in their purpose, when they are living their logos. But he wasn't. He lost his way. And so now if I can spend my life helping people find their way, it's an act of redemption. One of the most tragic aspects of my father's life um, really revolved around a mirror. My father didn't like himself. He, he didn't like the man that was staring back at him in the mirror. Getting him to love himself, to accept his greatness was, the, well, clearly it was an impossibility. He, he couldn't or he wouldn't do it. I do believe that's what his life came down to. Yes, there was mental illness. Yes, there was all kinds of extenuating circumstances. But at the end of the day, my dad couldn't go to the mirror and look at him in himself in the eyes. I call this a mirror moment to go look at that man and say, you know, Shelly, I love you. You're a good man. He was a great dad. I mean, he was a really exceptional dad. He didn't have enough time to be a grandpa, but the limited time that he was, he was a wonderful grandfather. He was a good man. People who knew Shelley would just echo these sentiments. Was he perfect? Absolutely not. He had all kinds of human frailties and flaws like the rest of us. But he was a good, good, good man. He just couldn't receive that goodness. He couldn't receive that love 
from others, couldn't receive it from himself. So I call this the mirror moment and I use it with a lot of people I counsel because I believe with every ounce of my being that you have to be able to go to the mirror and look at the man, look at the woman staring back at you and like what you see. You have to be able to go check in with him or her um, on a daily basis. I mean, like this is something we should be doing part of our meaning work, um, our, our spiritual work, our inner work of really developing it. Now, some people will be listening and go, what do you mean? Like, how hard is that? I'm telling you, for a lot of people, it's very hard. In fact, it's so hard that there's a name for people who have um, a phobia around looking at themselves in the mirror. I can't remember. It's a really weird word. I looked it up, but it, it exists. It's a thing. But I'm not talking about phobias. I'm not talking about something clinical. What I'm talking about is existential. It's it's at the core of who we are, of not liking ourselves. And so much of the work I do with people, with logotherapy, helping them um, heal through meaning, comes down to liking yourself, loving yourself. I'm not just talking about Stuart Smalley, right? Um, Doggone it, people like me from Saturday Night Live. I'm not talking about motivation. My friends Dan and Elise, who I run the Meaning Academy with, pointed out the difference between motivation and inspiration. Motivation comes from the outside. Inspiration comes from the inside. I'm not talking about motivating yourself, pushing yourself from the outside to getting yourself to like yourself. No, I'm talking about genuinely liking the man or the woman staring back at you from the mirror because if you don't have that, you have nothing. Now, I looked it up also. It said the average person, well, the average man looks at himself in the mirror like 26 times a day. The average woman was more than that. It was like 36 times a day, but whatever. It was quite a bit. So we have lots and lots and lots of opportunities for mirror moments in our lives. Why is this so important? Um, when I was, I want to say 18 years old, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, um, gave me a poem. And he gave it to me because he didn't like the young man that I was acting like. He liked the man who I was, but not the man who I was becoming, acting like. And so he was really um, a moral guide for me. He was a good man, my grandpa Jack. I've spoken about him quite a bit. But he gave me this poem. It's from 1934. And it was near and dear to my grandpa Jack's heart. And I'm sure I didn't really receive it at the deepest level at the time that he gave it to me. But I have thought about it each and every step of the way since then, and especially, well, I'll circle back to with my dad. Because, and I have offered it in some ways to my clients. I mean, literally, I'll definitely give them this poem. But um, figuratively, it's why I assign mirror moment tasks to go to the mirror, to look at yourself, and to learn to love yourself. Now, I have a friend and a client who I've worked with for a few years. Um, I never like to use his name. He wouldn't mind, but I still won't use it. But let's call him Brian. So Brian, um, when we started working together, he was midlife, you know, mid late 40s. He was successful outwardly. Every measure of the term, he had checked all the right boxes. You know what they are. And yet he didn't like himself. He didn't love himself, but he, he didn't even like himself. And he was struggling. He was going through 
what at the time felt like alcoholism. I don't think in retrospect it was, but he was struggling with alcohol. He was sabotaging um, on many levels, and he just wasn't happy. And through our work together, we, we talked a lot about not blaming circumstances, not blaming parents and upbringing and childhood. You know, in our society right now, we're creating a victim culture. And a victim is somebody who is powerless. And if our circumstances are responsible for our happiness, for our character, for our meaning, then we are literally powerless. And so our work from a logotherapeutic perspective is to take back our power, to own our choices or lack thereof, to take responsibility for our lives. So Brian did a lot of work around owning his choices, taking responsibility for his life, going to the mirror and forgiving that man that was staring back at him that he did not like. The challenge was, is that Brian couldn't look at himself in the mirror. I know it's hard to sort of imagine. What do you mean? Like figuratively he couldn't look? No, literally he couldn't look at himself in the mirror. He would tell me he would brush his teeth, you know, walking around the bathroom, but not looking in the mirror. He would go to the bathroom and, you know, he wouldn't like necessarily cover it, but he would wash his hands while not looking in the mirror. I don't think it was on the level of that clinical phobia, whatever the heck it's called, but it sure felt like that. It sure felt telling to both him and to me, and he was quite aware of it. So when I assigned for him the mirror moment to go to the mirror and look at himself, he, he couldn't do it. He would not do it. He was not yet capable. Not yet, because now he likes the man. He looked uh, staring back at them in the mirror, but it took a time. It took process. And I shared with him the following poem, and I also shared with him my dad's tragic ending. And I do think those things have also helped him on his journey of discovering his meaning, his purpose, and loving that man looking back at the mirror. So this was a poem coming back to my grandfather uh, that he gave to me. It's called The Guy in the Glass. It's from 1934. It's got some dated language, but I also like it for that reason because it feels... Um, feels quite beautiful, quite um, sort of a yesteryear kind of a feel. The Guy in the Glass by Dale Wimborough. When you get what you want in your struggle for self, and the world makes you king for a day, then go to the mirror and look at yourself and see what that guy has to say. For it isn't your father or mother or wife whose judgment upon you must pass, the feller whose verdict counts most in your life is the guy staring back from the glass. He's the feller to please, never mind all the rest, for he's with you clear up to the end. And if you've passed your most dangerous, difficult test, if the guy in the glass is your friend, you may be like Jack Horner, boxer, I believe, and chisel a plum and think you're a wonderful guy. But the man in the glass says you're only a bum if you can't look him straight in the eye. You can fool the whole world down the pathway of years and get pats on the back as you pass. But your final reward will be heartache and tears if you've cheated the guy in the glass. I love this poem. <clears throat> I'm sure you it resonates with you. I've not met anybody it doesn't resonate with. The guy, the gal, and the glass change the language to suit you. The point is clear. You can have everything. The world can tell you you are the most wonderful person. If you don't believe it, you can't receive it. And if you can't receive it, then it's not true. It's not yours. It's meaningless. 
doing the work means you begin to like the guy, the gal staring back at you in the glass from the mirror. It means that you respect that person. You can hold that gaze. You know that experience. You've been with somebody who can't look you in the eyes. There's something off when somebody can't hold your gaze. It doesn't mean they're a bad person, but something is out of alignment. Something is off. If you can't hold a gaze, either you're out of alignment or they're out of alignment or we're out of alignment, but the work of our life is to get into our alignment, our integrity. The reason why we can't look at ourselves in the eye, in the, in the mirror, is because of that integrity. At its deepest level, the word integrity means integral, integrated, whole. And when we live a life compartmentalized where I'm this way in this situation and I don't like that guy, and then I come home and I'm a nice guy, that's out of alignment. We have to live our lives where we can feel good about the man, the woman we are out in the world, out at home, or vice versa. I know lots of people who are you know, wonderful people out in the world, and then they go home and they treat their spouse, their children like crap. So living in alignment, being able to look in the mirror and like the man, like the woman, respect more than anything else who he or she is. Respect isn't about perfection. The people I respect are not perfect. And the people who are perfect usually are not the ones we respect. So it's not about perfection. It's about living one's values, correcting when we're off track, making amends, doing what it takes to get back into good graces and to be able to look at yourself in the mirror. My friend struggled, Brian struggled so deeply with that. And over time, what I watched was a man who figuratively but literally could go look at himself in the mirror over time and now has no problem with it, now loves that man staring back in the glass. And I'll end with, why is this so profound for me? I wrote about this in Spark Seekers because it breaks my heart. My dad not only died, died by suicide, committed suicide, but it's the way he did it. I'll be a little graphic here, so if you wanna check out now, now would be a good time to turn it off, but it is very meaningful to me, and I don't just say this for gratuitous um, you know, reactions or response. I, I, I share this genuinely because it's just so devastating and yet foundational to the work we're all here to do. So my dad hung himself and I got the police report um, when I went a few days later to his home in, in Detroit, just outside of Detroit in West Bloomfield. And I asked my stepmother if I could just be alone. She asked if you wanted anything. I said, no, I just want to be alone in my dad's room where he hung himself in, in their bedroom. He, um, he removed all of his jewelry. I mean, he was very thoughtful, methodical which is important because I don't think it was random what he did. He tied a slip knot around a rope that he went out and he purchased. And um, it was always sort of profound to me because I remember sitting with him in Cub Scouts learning how to make a slip knot. And so I saw the rope. I saw the, the notch. He put it above a beam above his bed. And um, I saw the notch that his body caused in the, in the beam. And I just sat there for a long time and then it hit me like a ton of bricks when I'm just sitting on his bed looking at this knot, looking at his jewelry that was on the, on the dresser. And I got the police report and it hit me like a ton of bricks. The way he hung himself and the way they reported his body, 
I got up and I hung from the, the beam um, to see his vantage point. And from that vantage point, according to what was written down on that paper, was that he was staring at himself in a mirror in, um, in the bathroom. And it broke my heart. It broke my heart, obviously, that my dad killed himself. But the way that he died, his, again, not to be graphic or gruesome, but his neck didn't break. Um, so that means, I think I had read, he probably was 30, 60, 90 seconds before losing consciousness. I mean, it wasn't immediate if your neck doesn't break. And so I just ripped me in two to think my dad left this world looking at himself in the mirror. I don't know if he tried to undo what he had set in motion. I'd like to think that he probably did, but I don't know if that makes me feel better or worse. It really has defined me. It's one of those moments in my life, um, and that's why I, the, the mirror moment is so important for me to make sure, A, that if I can be of service to anybody who's at that juncture to get them to make a better choice, any choice besides that one, yes, but also more proactively because I really don't do a ton of that type of work anymore now that I left the rabbinate. My work is much more coaching and proactive counseling now to help people to way before that point to go to a mirror proactively and not only accept the person looking back at them, but love the person. Certainly, God forbid, not leaving this world in such a degradated, painful, horrific state. And so I do this work for my father, and I know I know my father, um, it honors him, and it redeems the tragedy. Because again, Brian, who is one example of many, if, if he can be a benefit from this poem, and from my dad's story, and from becoming more proactive in his life to make better choices, to do the inner work that is necessary so he can receive all of those outer blessings, then my dad's uh, tragedy is no longer meaningless. We've discovered meaning within it, and I believe in that way redeems him. So I share all of this with you because this one is not insignificant. I don't think any of my podcasts are. I wouldn't do them. But this one is of ultimate significance to me, and I believe to you as well, because no, most of us are not going to end up in that um, <clears throat> that level of, of extreme or horror. But all of us struggle with self-worth and loving ourselves. And so this isn't theoretical. This is about learning how to go to those mirrors 26 times a day or 34 times a day or once a day or once in a while. And holding the gaze of that man, that woman staring back at you and asking yourself, really, do I, do I respect you? And if not, then what's it going to take to get back into your good graces? What's it going to take... To, to earn back that respect, you can earn back the respect. You must earn back the respect. That is the work that each of us is here to do. It is not about being perfect. You have not been perfect. We will not be perfect. The point is not perfection. No matter what you have done, no matter how far you have strayed, no matter how difficult it might be to hold that man or that woman's gaze, um, it says in the uh, Talmud, the greater the man, the greater the woman, the greater the shadow. So um, just because you have a shadow doesn't mean you're not a great man or a great woman. It means that you have that much more potential to find your way back, to earn your way back, to do what it takes to be able to hold the, the gaze of that man or the woman. You can fool the whole world down the pathway of years and get pats on the back as you pass, but your final reward will be heartache and tears if you've cheated the guy or the gal in the glass, don't cheat that guy. Don't cheat that gal. Do the work. Reach out to me. 
and we will do this work together. Until the next time, jump over to DefianceSpirit.org or TheMeaningAcademy.com. And until the next time, defy your number, live your spirit, and love that man, that woman staring back from you in the glass. Thank you for listening to the Defiant Spirit Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Baruch Halevi. If you like what you heard, please consider leaving a five-star review and share this podcast with others. To learn more about the Defiant Spirit, get more inspirational content, or see how we might work together to live your Defiant Spirit, visit defiantspirit.org. Until then, take back your power and live your